1 Samuel chapter 25. I'm going to read the entire narrative in chapter 25 in a moment. I thought about um, just giving you a, a, a synopsis of the text. And then I came to my senses and thought how stupid that is because God's word is more important than anything I have to say. So we're going to read it in its entirety. Bible's in the back, page 311. Blue Bible's in the back. I'm reading from the ESV. Kids, you're dismissed. If you don't have a Bible, I would say grab one now. Uh, uh, Blue Bible's in the back. Kids dismissed. Page 311. I'm only going to put some verses up. I can't put it all. So, 1 Samuel chapter 25. The king of Israel is a man by the name of Saul. Saul's the first king of Israel. Saul was the king that Israel wanted. He was strong and he was handsome. And by all outward appearances, he was like the kings of other nations. But David will soon be the second king of Israel. God has said so. God has declared it. God is purposing that truth. And for the past several weeks, we're watching this transition, this transitional period where, where, where the kingdom will be taken from Saul and be given to David, ripped out of the hands of Saul and given to David. God has said so. And King Saul, over the past several weeks, we have noticed, has become more and more paranoid, violently angry, and he got one thing on his mind, and that is to kill David. David has been on the run. David is in the wilderness. You said the wilderness is the place where God puts us in the pressure cooker. He's, he is teaching David. He is showing David what it means to be a king. He is running from the murderous actions and threats of his father-in-law, which is King Saul. David left behind his wife, Saul's daughter, Michael, and his best friend, his covenant friend, Jonathan. He's on the run. And last week, David learned a very valuable lesson while on the run. If you remember, he stopped in a cave and with his men and he hid in the back of a cave in a place called En Gedi. And if you remember, it was King Saul that walked into the cave alone, as the Bible says, to relieve himself, to use it as a restroom. David saw that, his men saw that, and David, David refused, though, to, to, to take matters into his own hand, to raise a hand against the king, against Saul, even though Saul was trying to kill David. David said, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed and even stopped his men from doing harm to Saul. David gets close, cuts a a piece of of cloth off the uh, king's robe, actually gets convicted by even doing that, and then reveals himself to the king. After the the king relieved himself, David revealed himself to the king outside the cave, and he tells him, Here is the piece of your cloth. I could have killed you, but I'm not trying to kill you. I'm not the criminal that people are telling you that I am. I'm a servant, uh, excuse me, a faithful servant. And at that moment, after David speaks and shows respect, Saul openly acknowledges for the first time, really the first time in Scripture is this clear that the kingdom of God will be taken from Saul and given to David. Chapter 24, verse 20. And now, Saul says, behold, talking to David, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And this encounter between King Saul and David 
in chapter 24 ends with these words. Chapter 24, verse 22. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. In other words, even though Saul makes that proclamation, David knows it's short-lived. And Saul goes home to Gibeah. David, will see, goes to a, a southern regions of Judah called Paran. But I want us to see as we now launch into chapter 25, that's the end of chapter 24, chapter 25, is I want to first look at chapter 25, our scripture lesson today, just verse 1, or first part of verse 1. Look what it says with me. Chapter 25, verse 1. David in Paran, in the wilderness, stronghold, Saul, home in Gibeah. Now, chapter 25, verse 1, now Samuel died, just like out of nowhere. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Just boom. Now we're moving on to the next next scene. Uh, I guess one verse. And I don't think it's simply to tell us what happened, although that's part of it. I think there's some things that we have to consider because the the, the narrator put it right there, right before the next major scene. I think it tells us a couple things. Number one, David's mentor and spiritual leader that he had gone to for, for, to hear the word of the Lord, Samuel, is dead. An, an important man in David's life is now dead. And you can see the importance, this national resource, this importance. Uh, it says all Israel assembled and mourned for him. It's, an, it's the end of an era of Israel that is very, very important. Remember, Samuel is all, was, was brought on the scene transitioning Israel from a, a, a theocracy, a people governed by God, to a monarchy. That's an important time in the life of Israel. Samuel is that guy. And David, it says everyone mourned. I don't think David was there. Probably not because his men are in run for their life. But it does say something how, how significant this death is. All of Israel mourned. And I'm sure David was grieving the loss of Samuel. Second thing which I think is interesting is that Samuel dies right, be, right after King Saul acknowledges that in which Samuel's been saying over and over again. Saul, the kingdom's going to be stripped from you. God's going to give it to a man after his own heart. God is going to give it to someone who's better than you. Samuel told Saul several times. And then he dies when? Right after Saul himself acknowledges that reality. Coincidence? I don't think so. Third, what's so interesting about this text, which is we get into chapter 24, David's mentor, his spiritual advisor who speaks the word of God to him is dead, and all of a sudden, a lovely young lady shows up, chapter 25, to speak truth to David. Samuel's dead. Abigail comes on the scene. Chapter 25. Hear the word of the Lord. I'm going to read the whole story. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man, the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young man, listen, go up to Carmel 
and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace, shalom be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now, your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you so. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, <coughs> Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread, my water, my meat that I have killed by my shears and give it to men who, who come from I do not wear? So David's young men turned away and came back and told all this to David. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And, and about 400 men went up with David while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he railed at them. For the men who were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore... Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste. 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five seeds and parched grain, and a hundred cluster of raisin and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on a donkey. And she said to her young men, go. Go on before me. Behold, I'll, I'll come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David. And more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried, got down from the donkey, fell before David, and her face bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please, let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men on my Lord whom you sent. Now then, Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving, and from saving with your own hands, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present... That your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please 
Forgive the trespasses of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God and she and 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 the lives of your enemies and he shall sling out from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that has been spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without a cause for my Lord, without a cause for my Lord, working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servants. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord. The God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me, blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed, a blood guilt, and from working salvation with my own hands, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me. Truly by morning, there had been not left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought. And he said to her, go in peace. Go in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice. I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal. And behold, he was having a feast in the house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry, very merry within him, for he was drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insults I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and spoke to Abigail to ask her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose, bowed down with her face to the ground, and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose, mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the message of David and became his wife. Verse 43. David also took Ahinoam and Jezreel. Both of them became his wife. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was at Galem. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Three main characters. I mean, the story is just beautiful. Three main people will look at three main characters, and that's the way we're going to do our text this morning. First, the foolishness of Nabal. The foolish Nabal. Second, the faithful Abigail. Beautiful story of a beautiful young lady. And finally, the forgetful David. So that's where we're looking at. Number one, foolish Nabal. Now, between verse one and verse two, a lot has happened. David was in Paran, which is in the very southern place of Judah. He has gone north a little bit to a place called Carmel near Maon. All right, so he's been doing some traveling. While he was there, while he was in that region, it was uh, a sheep shearing. I got to say that. I said a lot already the first service. Sheep shearing time. It's a time of celebration in Israel. It's a time of rejoicing in Israel. It's a time of party in Israel. It takes place usually after the summer crops have been brought in and prophets then were distributed to others. And the text tells us that David's in this vicinity. He's in Carmel now. He's in Maon. 
and he's protecting a very rich man's property whose name is Nabal. It says that he was very rich. Literally in the Hebrew means heavy. Very heavy. He was one of those men whose greatness consisted in the abundance, not necessarily as big as he was, was an abundance of his possessions. And now at the time of sheep shearing, his wealth was going to grow. He was going to gain more possessions. Nabal's shepherds had been with David over the course of the year. And not only they were protected, it says in, in chapter 25, verse 16, that one of Nabal's men said to David, one of Nabal's men said that David, look what it says, was a wall to us. So this is, one of the men were talking to Abigail. Not only does David protected us, but look what it says. He was a wall to us by night and by day, 24-7, all the while, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. That's the protection that David brought to the shepherd. Shepherding in those days was a risky business. There were robber and thieves everywhere. So it's good to have a band of, of, of guys, uh, an army, keeping watch over your sheep. That's what David did. And David's presence obviously was a great help to Nabal. David's presence was a great help to Nabal's family, his wife, his, his men that served him as well. And his personal wealth was growing. And Nabal benefited from David's security. But now David and his men are in need. You see the contrast. In ancient days when it was customary for shepherds to give out gifts to show hospitality. It was expected in those days. During sheep shearing they would, they would give gifts to people who would aid them and help them throughout the year. It was that time to pay back. So David sends ten men and says go to Nabal. And tell them, when you see Nabal, greet him in my name. Their greeting was with David's greeting. Their, their message was from David. Their, their appeal and pronouncement of blessing was from David. They were to be representative of David. They were to bring to Nabal the attention to the fact that, hey, we were out here doing our thing, and we kept watch over your, uh, uh, over your people. You, you, you've been, it, it was very beneficial to you. Verse 8, and then ask him, please... Give us whatever you have at hand to your servant and to your son, David. Simple, uh, courteous transaction. And in fact, if you look at the text, uh, uh, David is acting very humble. He has a subordinate attitude. Same thing he did last week with, with, with King Saul. He is humble. He, is, he has subordinate attitude. Um, he, he called Saul my father, and now he see here he says, you, we are your servants, your son David. There's, there's subordinate, there's humility there. David had freely protected Nabal. David had served and protected Nabal for free, and his wealth was growing, and now it was time to him to help David. Kind of reminds me of Don Corleone, Right? I'll serve you, but there's going to come a day. You don't know when that day is that you'll pay me back my favor. Well, now's the time. It's payback time. It's payback time. Now, Nabal could have said to his men, thank you for watching. Appreciate it. Not giving you anything, but thank you. He could have said, thank you. I'll give you whatever I have at hand. There's a half a loaf of bread. 600 men take small bites. He could have said, how many men do you have? Listen, load up your, your, your horses. We're going we're gonna to feed the entire, thank you so much. We're feeding everybody. Or he could have said, no, say, thank you, but no thank you, and then insult them in the process. That's what the fool Nabal did. 
the last option. His name, Nabal, means fool. You've got to wonder what the parents were thinking. Look how cute. Let's call him fool, a fool. The commentators, funny, I was reading this week, they're like, it couldn't have possibly been given him that name at birth. Maybe like it was a nickname that came later on. The text doesn't say that. You'd like to think that mom and dad didn't go, let's name him fool. That would be a good name. We'll watch him get beat up and be a fool all of his life. Maybe that's why he's such a, a, a difficult man. I don't know. But his name is fool. Verse 3 says he was harsh. Badly behaved, meaning he was not only uh, uh, harsh with people, badly behaved meaning he was an evil businessman as well. His name is a fool, he was harsh, and he was uh, uh, badly behaved. Verse 10 and 12, he sends back this insult, if you look. It says, he says to him, David, you, you came in the name of David? Who's David? David who? Never heard of him. Sounds like a runaway, a scam, trying to get my stuff. I don't know this David. He knew who David was. Everyone in the region, which we will see, knew about David, and that included Nabal. This was an unprovoked slap in the face. And Nabal is shames and humiliates David in front of his men. And in an honor-shame culture, such a shaming cannot go unnoticed. It will not go unpunished. Nabal is a fool and just proves what the prophet said in Isaiah 32. For the fool speaks folly... And his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord. Listen to what it says. The fool to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. That's our boy Nabal. Nabal won't give up one piece of bread. Nabal won't give up his stuff because Nabal identifies himself with his riches. Look at verse 11. Shall I, he says, shall I take my bread? Shall I take my water? Shall I take my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? You know what David says about a fool? Maybe learn this. I don't know. In chapter 14 of the Psalms, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Foolishness is not simpleness. It's not not being smart. Foolishness in Scripture is someone who says in their heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. There is no God. You know what it reminds me of? reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar. You know the story, Daniel's 4? Nebuchadnezzar gets on his rooftop, looks out over his kingdom, looks out of what is called the the Hanging Gardens is one of the uh, wonders of the ancient world and the city, and he says... Is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence. I, by my might, by my power, and for the glory of my majesty. You know the story. Classic, classic example of humanism. Everything is by man. By man's glory, by man's strength. Everything. Very opposite of what Paul writes in Romans For from him and through him and to him all things to him, God, be glory forever and ever. And as Nebuchadnezzar is saying these things, if you know the story, a voice from heaven says, really? This is all you? Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you will go in the wilderness and you will be insane. You will will act like the animals and you will eat grass for seven years until you learn that glory alone belongs to God. And that's exactly what happens. And at the end of seven years, Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses, and what does he do? He recognizes the one true God, and he alone 
should get all the glory. Nebuchadnezzar learned. Nabal does not learn that lesson. He will die in his self-glory. And what you need to know this morning, family, is that God created us. He, he created us for his glory, to be content, to be fulfilled, to be satisfied, ultimately satisfied in God alone. Nabal was content in his riches. He gives glory to his stuff. Glory means weightiness. It, it, it literally, in the Hebrew, it has the idea that the person that having glory is heavy, weightiness, and position, and power, and wealth, and value. He's worthy of praise. Nabal found his identity and worth in what he possessed, his value in what he had and what he owned. That is what it means to give glory to something. Whoever and whatever is in a position of glory, weightiness, preeminence, and prominence, and value is that what you worship? That is what you glory in. It's not just a Christian idea. All people everywhere glory in something. Everyone who has ever lived, everyone who will ever live is a worshiper. They place things at the center of their heart, even if it's momentarily, and they switch and make other things meaning in life, but they place value and weightiness in it. That is why, that is what God, that is the way God made us. That's the Imago Dei. God did not just create us to worship him. God created us worshipers. And because of sin, we continue to worship. We continue to bring glory to things, but we don't give glory to God because of sin. And we continue to worship, but not that which is right, God alone, but which is wrong and sinful. The longing of your desires, the treasures of your heart, your passion, your enthusiasm, wherever that is, wherever that resides, that's in the position of glory. And when we don't ascribe it to God, when we don't ascribe it to the preeminence of who God is and what God has done, and we don't get our glory and our identity through the gospel, it's called idolatry. It could be bad things like drug addiction, alcohol, gambling, whatever you want to call, or it could be good things that become ultimate things like relationship, children, hard work can still, the, when good things become ultimate things, they become idle things. God alone is the all-satisfying, glorious God who, who can capture, redeem, and satisfy the heart. What are you looking at this morning? What, what are you looking to for life-sustaining, stability, security, value, and acceptance? It is God alone, or is it in things, and stuff, or people? Listen, until, until sin, when sin twists our hearts and, make us, and, and drive us to worship things, created things, not the creator God, Romans 1. When, when that sin has hindered us, it keeps us out of relationship with God until that's dealt with. Wanting, wanting to glory and stuff until we recognize that we are seeking things other than God. It's when we recognize that and then we come to the gospel. And it's through the gospel, by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that your heart will rest upon God. The human heart, apart from the reconciling work of Christ, the human heart, apart from the work of the gospel, the human heart, apart from the beauty and glory of Christ, is open arms looking for something or someone to cling to. And Nabal is clinging to his stuff, and he refuses. You could tell he's clinging because he refuses to be generous. William Taylor says this about Nabal. He says this about Nabal. Do not think that this race, this kind of guy, is extinct, not at all. You are very likely to meet him. You may have met him yesterday. You may meet him perhaps tomorrow, the man with a heavy purse and a light head, with full pockets and empty cranium. 
is everywhere is enabled. And if happily he combines with these, the first of a drunkard, he's going to get, you'll see that, he will only make the identity more complete. That's Nabal. That's the fool. Don't be like Nabal. Come to God through Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his brutal death on your behalf. Know his love. See his beauty. Trust him and rest upon him. Don't be like foolish Nabal. Look at, look at Abigail. As, as this is unfolding, as, as, as David hears about not getting anything, verse 13, he says, every man, get your sword. Everyone straps their sword. He straps their sword. 400 people strap up, 200 stay back, keep the goods. Watch the stuff out in the wilderness. David has heard enough. And fortunately, fortunately, foolish, harsh, and badly behaved Nabal has an insightful servant. Look with me at verse 14. One of the young men told Abigail, that's the providence of God. We don't hear much about that guy. But whoever that guy is, that's God's hand saying, go tell Abigail. And that, that guy doesn't get a lot of props, but let me give him one right there. The young man is listening to the voice of God, and he goes and tells a very perceptive and resourceful wife. One of the men runs and tells Abigail. That's her name. And he tells her all that's going to happen. And how good David was. And he even reminds him, look at verse 17. He says, you know your husband. You can't talk to that guy. He's worthless. A worthless man. You ever hear that word worthless before? I hope so. Chapter 1, chapter 2. Hannah was called, uh, uh, Eli said, you're a worthless woman. She says, don't call me a worthless woman. What happens? Eli's son is the worthless man, remember? Chasing after women, abusing them in the temple, uh, using worshipers. They were the worthless ones. And in comes Abigail. Her her name means the father's joy. (laughs) She's everything Nabal wasn't. Look at verse 3. Tells us that, Ab, excuse me, Nabal, that's his name, means fool. Look at her. Verse 3, she's discerning. That literally means good of understanding. He was harsh and badly behaved, but she was what? Beautiful. Literally, it means beautiful of form. Good sense, good looks. Inwardly beautiful, outwardly beautiful. That's what the text says. And Abigail sees and perceives what's going on, and immediately, this very smart, intelligent, shrewd, and courageous woman kicks into gear. She gathers together all this food, man, these loaves of bread, these wine, uh, skins of wine, sheep, grain, raisins, puts them on a donkey, says, listen, guys, you go ahead, because David, uh, you got to get going. I, I can't leave right now. You go ahead, and, and just in case, we don't want David to get here. We want David to get and to see what we're sending him, and she sends him off. Abigail is acting scandalous. Don't miss this. This ain't 2018. For a woman, a married woman in ancient Near East, to do this is downright scandalous. Meeting without her husband knowing another man who's an enemy of her husband is extremely bold and extremely courageous. And I will add, according to this text, extremely faithful. Verse 23, she gets to the... She gets to the place. She actually gets to the place to see David by the providence of God. And, and just like David had fell down and, and gave homage and respect and, and, and humbly bowed before King Saul last week, she gets off her donkey. What does she do? She falls to the ground, face down, and pays respect to David. Verse 24, she says, On me alone, my Lord, 
be the guilt. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. She's taking responsibility of what took place upon her hell self. She says in verse 25, no one told me this. My Lord, I did not know you sent men. You had come and you had gone. I, I didn't know anything alone. Me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. She doesn't blame anyone. She intervenes on behalf of her foolish husbands. She intervenes on behalf of her foolish husband. And guys, for the record, it's not supposed to be that way. You are to step out and take responsibility. That's what headship is, to take responsibility. Wives don't take responsibility. You take responsibility of your family unless you're a fool like Nabal. I know none of you are, but I'm just saying. After her request to speak to David, he grants it to her. What does she do? Look what she says. She said, listen, this guy Nabal, you know what his name means, David? It means a fool. You know what he is? He's a fool. Now, ladies, this doesn't give you permission to call your husband a fool. Unless it's going to save his life, just saying. You never know. Abigail does not notify Nabal. Because Abigail knew that if she told her husband what she had told the servants to do, what would have happened? He would have said, no, you're not going. (coughs) You're not taking David and his men, not one piece of bread. She's not only attempting to save her husband's life, she's also looking to save the lives of of her household as well. She's offering herself as a scapegoat for David's wrath, and she pleads with David. I believe it's the longest speech of a woman in the Old Testament. Verse 26. Now then, my Lord. She gets up. She, she's, she's praying him homage. As the Lord lives, capital L, as your soul lives because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand taking vengeance by your own hand. Now, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal, verse 27. And now let this present, and I'm giving to you, be given to you the people who follow you. Please, verse 28, forgive us. Forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord, small l, David, a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you shall live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord our God. And the lives of your enemies shall be a sling out as from the hollow of a sling. She knows exactly who David is. That's the same word sling used when he fought Goliath. Verse 30. When the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you the prince over Israel, my Lord, shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without a cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. When the Lord has dealt well with you, my Lord, then remember your servants. Beautiful, smart, to the point. Abigail speaks. She's taking responsibility for her husband's folly and and her fault. And she's pleading forgiveness. But I want you to notice, every Bible's open. I want you to notice how she begins and ends her speech. Verse 26 and verse 31. What she is saying to David is, listen, if you had gone ahead and did what was in your heart to do to Nabal and all the male in Carmel, you would be guilty of murder. You would be guilty of shedding innocent blood. Okay? By me coming out to you, 
I've stopped the blood guilt. I've stopped you from avenging yourself by your own hand. And she intervenes and keeps David from doing what? From doing the same thing Saul did. She's walking in Saul's shoes and Saul's sandal, remember? He ordered the murder of 85 priests and all the people in Nob. And now David is going to kill Nabal and everyone in his home. And she bases, I love it, on forgiveness. On the forgiveness and the expectation, you got to see this, of David's coming kingdom. It's brilliant, insightful. Her language as she speaks anticipates, as though she knows in some detail, I think she does, the great promise that God will make to David through Nathan, the prophet, in 2 Samuel, not even there yet, about the eternal kingdom that David will have and his son, the Lord Jesus, will sit on it. She says, forgive me. Look, verse 28, please forgive the sins of your servants for the Lord will certainly make you, David, a sure house. You will come into your throne. You will have a sure house. Language right out of 2 Samuel 7. And listen what she's saying. Now, I want you to catch this. She's saying this. Listen, David, forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive me. Don't take out your your vengeance on us because when you come into your promised kingdom that God said you will have, it's a sure house, you don't want to come in as a vengeful, guilty, murderous king. That's not how you want to establish your kingdom, David. Don't do it. And who does Abigail remind you of? Who does she she remind you of? What does she look like? Who does she look like? Now, before you say Jesus, because that's 99.9% of the time the correct answer, Notice what she does. Number one, she is the revealer of truth. She prophetically reveals truth about his dynasty. You'll come into a sure house. You'll be the prince over Israel. She reveals truth. Look what she does. She restrains David from sinning, preventing him from bringing judgment and bloodshed upon himself. And then she reminds David. She not only reveals her truth, restrains David. She reminds David of who is the one who should ultimately get the glory. Over and over, the Lord is the one who restrained you. The Lord is the one who will make you a sure house. The Lord will be the one who will care for you. The Lord will do all, all that is good to you. You know what she's doing? She's giving glory to God. Her husband, though, wants to give glory to stuff. But Abigail is giving glory to God. Who reveals truth, restrains us from sin, reminds us of who should get the glory? The third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches us in John 16 that he's going away. The help of the Spirit will come. I'll send him to you. When he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will speak, not on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Do you see what the Spirit of God does? It's just a picture. I'm not going to make a big deal, but as I'm studying this, I'm thinking restraining, revealing, remembering. That's the Spirit of God. David then takes the gift from Abigail. Mission accomplished as far as she's concerned. And the text tells us in verse 36 that Abigail goes home. And where does she find her foolish husband? The one who escaped by that much from the wrath of David? Too drunk, having a party, too drunk to understand what just happened. And this woman, this smart, faithful lady, discerning and beautiful Abigail, waits until the morning. One can only wonder, he may have been a violent drunk, we don't know. 
But it would have been, it would have been interesting. Take a side note. Abigail, David's men are coming. They're coming with vengeance. They're going to take out every single male in your house. Really? My husband? The worthless, foolish idiot? Good. Hey, well, honey, want another drink? Now let me pour you something else. <laughs> I have one more on me. Come on. But not faithful Abigail. She wasted the morning, verse 37a, and tells him, look, you just barely escaped. Abigail's not only this stopping and restraining David from sinning, but Abigail's the savior of Nabal too, really. And while they're having this conversation, she's telling him everything that's going on. He's eating his Wheaties, right? And it says his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And the text says about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. No surprise, right? God's a giver of life. God's a taker of life. David will say that God himself avenged him, verse 39. Faithful, faithful Abigail. Finally forgetful David. Three headings, really. I just want to hit these quickly. You can talk about it in a community group. First is familiarity. I've been saying that all week. I got it right. That's a tough word. David gets slapped. That's supposed to be funny. <laughs> David gets slapped in the face. His ego gets crushed. And he orders everyone, put on your swords. We don't know exactly what he means by that. But we do because of verse 21. I mean, we could think, we, you know, I mean, why else would they do that? But 21 makes it clear. Surely in vain I guarded this man in the wilderness so that nothing was missed that belonged to him. He returned me evil for good. I've been good to him. He's returning me with evil. God do so to enemies. If I wake up in the morning and not every single male is dead. Now, before we go to David and say, man, you have lost your mind. A dude don't want to give you a burger, and you are ready to take out him and his entire family. Let's all agree maybe it's a little more familiar to us as we'd like to think. Has your ego, has your, has your, ego, has your, has your self-pride, has your individuality been, been attacked ever? Belittled? Offended? You've been offended, and you think... How can I get even? What can I say that's, that's more shameful, that's more avengeful than what that person just did or what just say? Now, if you say, I've never done that, I'll assume you came out of your house for the first time ever today. And I'll assume that you live alone. You're all by yourself all the time. All of us, right? David needed to be saved and restrained, saved from bloodshed, from shedding innocent blood. That's true. But first, David needed to be saved from himself. Four times, verse 26, 33, 34, 39, Abigail is seen as the instrument of God in preventing David to do, listen, what David's heart was inclined to do. He only comes to his senses in verse 32, and he agrees then with Abigail's perception, if not for your boldness, if not for your wisdom, my hands would have been stained with blood guilt. Verse 34, he agrees that ultimately it was the sovereignty of God. It was the very providence of God. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me, God has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried up and come to meet me, truly by morning there had been not left to Nabal so much as one male. Responsibility and sovereignty. God steps in. That's the providence of God. Can we praise God this morning for the providence? For, for the times when we want to, with all our hearts, Get even. And yet God intervenes. Maybe, maybe God steps in and gives you time to calm down. 
to think it through. Maybe God gives you time to pray. Maybe, maybe a phone call or a friend or God puts someone in your life that, that knocks some sense into you. I have to admit there are times in my life when I became so angry and vengeful with, with one, of my, one of my four kids, and I won't tell you which one because they'll get a text in about 10 seconds, that my wife would intervene, gently remind me, you're being a jerk right now. And the sad part is I always didn't listen to her. Such is the human heart, sinful and broken. Like I said before, before we judge, let's relate. Have you ever been wounded in your ego and want revenge? Have you ever been kind and generous to someone and got harshness in return? Have you ever tried to walk away from someone's words on Facebook when they said some smack about you and you're like, ah, and that's all you're thinking about all day long? All right, it's convicting. We'll move on. So familiarity. Let's not beat up on David. Let's recognize our own brokenness. Finally, and secondly, is for forgetfulness. The contrast, family, what I want you to see is the contrast between chapter 24 and chapter 25 is stark. In chapter 24, David is the restrainer. He is bent not on taking vengeance, but leaving vengeance to the Lord. In chapter 25, though, all David wants is to take vengeance upon Nabal. Giant contrast between the two. He refuses to harm the anointed king, but he's eager to murder an Israelite farmer. What a difference some time makes and the circumstances make. The biblical principle doesn't change. What changed was David's heart. He was vengeful. He was vengeful. He knew not to take out personal vengeance against God's anointed, but he couldn't figure out not to do that against an Israelite farmer. That's David. King David is capable of doing that, man. That is scary. Not for God sending Abigail. He would have done worse than what Saul had done at Nob. And and, and you know what? I think this is a test for David. He, he, he's been insulted, he's been, he's been shamed, but he wants to take out vengeance and, 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 and the crime doesn't match the punishment. He must learn what it means to trust the Lord. And I wonder how many times God has intervened in your life and in my life when we do stupid things and he has blocked the path of getting vengeance ourselves. Vengeance is for God to take, not David, not you and me. And lovely Abigail comes in and she speaks, you know what, she she speaks, and what does David do? This is the difference between David and Saul, by the way, as we study. Between the difference between David and Saul is this. Saul is confronted with the word of God and with truth, and Saul gets madder and madder and angrier and angrier and more violent. David is confronted, they both sin. David is confronted by his sin, and he gets humble, and he repents. That's the difference between those two men. And finally, fallibility. Story ends. David hears about Nabal's death takes Abigail as his wife. He marries another woman. Michael, who's back at home with her father Saul, is given to another man. All right, well, we're not going to get into that. As such is the time, such is the culture. Remember, I've said this before, the narrator is simply giving us information. He's not giving us a moral directive. David will have trouble with his ladies. One of them, his name is Bersheba. But here's the question we'll close on. Is David then the true savior of Israel? Will David be the one to whom the Bible says, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God?
Is David the one the prophet spoke about in Isaiah when he writes, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who has been born, who has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Is that David? No. David is fallible. The, the, the kingdom of God is not even safe in the hands of David, Abraham, and any other man of faith because all have sinned and fall short of the glory. David will sin. David has the capacity to take vengeance out on the innocent. There's only one savior. There's only one servant. There's only one that can be trusted with the kingdom. There's only one servant who could understand that the kingdom of God and the glory of God comes from enduring the hostilities of Nabal and Saul. Jesus Christ, punched, beaten, whipped, a crown of thorns upon his head. And by those who hated him, took him and crucified him. Hostile men crucified him and hung him on a cross. And on the cross, did he seek vengeance? No. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Can David be the savior of Israel? Can David be the savior of Israel? No. Absolutely not. Because our Savior has to be without sin in order to reconcile us to God and for God to be reconciled to us. He must be without sin. He must be without blemish. He must be without defect. He must be infallible. He must be perfect. And there's only one who meets the criteria, and that is the King of Kings, Jesus alone. On Christ alone, not on David, we have our hope. Our hope is found. David for sure anticipates the Savior by pointing to the office as king, his wonderful shepherding skills, but Jesus is the true and better, greater shepherd. He's the true and better, greater king. David can never be our Savior. Only Jesus can be our Savior because he is perfect. And whatever blemishes we have, whatever the faces of our character, whatever life has for us that brought shame and trouble, Jesus Christ can save. He can wipe away all our sin. But though our sins are red like crimson, in Christ they can be white as snow. Listen, only Jesus who lived the perfect life can take the wrath of God against sin on himself on the cross so that we can have peace with God and leave vengeance to the Lord. Father, Thank you for your work, for the work of your spirit restraining us and teaching us to walk with you. Help us to understand the truth of the gospel. Help us to remember that glory alone alone belongs to you. That, Father, we may not respond in vengeance, but in kindness because of Jesus. Lord, that we are wrapped in his arms and that all glory belongs to him. And Lord, all the different things in our lives and, the, and, and, and the, the places of idolatry, we pray that your spirit reveal the truth and the glory and the beauty and the incalculable worth of Christ, that we may rest upon him alone, that we may run to him alone, and we may cling to him alone, the one and true and living God, who died on the cross, rose from the dead, and gives life, beauty, to all those who call upon him. Help us to do that today. Help us to respond in faith, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.